Section 9 of Diary of a U-Boat Commander This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Diary of a U-Boat Commander by Stephen King Hall Section 9 A very awkward accident took place this morning, which resulted in severe injury to Johann Wiener, my second coxswain. A party of men under his direction were engaged in shifting the stern torpedo from its tube, in order to replace it with a spare torpedo, as I never allow any of my torpedoes to stay in the tube for more than a week at a time, owing to corrosion. The torpedo which had been in the tube had been launched back, and was on the floor plates. The spare torpedo, destined for the vacant tube, was hanging overhead, when without any warning the hook on the lifting band fractured, and the thousand kilograms mass of metal crashed down. Wonderful to relate, no one was killed, but two men were badly bruised, and Wiener has been very seriously injured. He was standing astride the spare torpedo, and his right leg was extremely badly crushed, mostly below the knee. Unfortunately, it took about ten minutes to release him from his position of terrible agony. I should have expected him to faint, but he did not. His face went dead white, and he began to sweat freely, but otherwise endured his ordeal with praiseworthy fortitude. I am now confronted with a perplexing situation. I cannot take him back to Germany. I cannot even leave my station and proceed south to any of the Norwegian ports. If I could find a neutral steamer with a doctor on board, I would transship him to her. But the chances of this godsend materializing are a thousand to one in these latitudes. If I sighted a hospital ship, I would close her, but as far as I know at present there are no hospital ships running up here. The chances of outside assistance may therefore be reckoned as nil. Wiener's hope of life depends on me and I cannot make up my mind to take the step which sooner or later must be taken, that is to say, amputation. It is a curious fact, but true nevertheless, that although, as a result of the war, men's lives, considered in quantity, seem of little importance, when it comes to the individual case, a personal contact, a man's life assumes all its pre-war importance. I feel acutely my responsibility in this matter. I see from his papers that he is a married man with a family. This seems to make it worse. I feel that a whole chain of people depend on me. New Entry Since I wrote the above words this morning, Wiener has taken a decided turn for the worse. I have been reading the medical handbook, with reference to the remarks on amputation, gangrene, etc., and I have also been examining his leg. The poor devil is in great pain, and there is no doubt that mortification has set in, as was indeed inevitable. I have decided that he must have his last chance, and that at 8 p.m. tonight I will endeavour to amputate. New Entry Midnight I have done it. Only partially successful. New Entry 
Last night, in accordance with my decision, I operated on Wiener. Voigtman assisted me. It was a terrible business, but I think it desirable to record the details whilst they are fresh in my memory, as a court of inquiry may be held later on. Voigtman and I spent the whole afternoon in the study of such meagre details on the subject as are available in the medical handbook. We selected our knives and a saw, and sterilized them. We also disinfected our hands. At 7.45 I dived the boat to sixty metres, at which depth the boat was steady. We had done our best with the wardroom table, and upon this the patient was placed. I decided to amputate about four inches above the knee, where the flesh still seemed sound. I considered it impracticable to administer an anaesthetic, owing to my absolute inexperience in this matter. Three men held the patient down, as with a firm incision I began the work. The sawing through the bone was an agonizing procedure, and I needed all my resolution to complete the task. Up to this stage all had gone as well as could be expected, when I suddenly went through the last piece of bone and cut deep into the flesh on the other side. An instantaneous gush of blood took place, and I realized that I had unexpectedly severed the popliteal artery before Voigtman, who was tying the veins, was ready to deal with it. I endeavored to staunch the deadly flow by nipping the vein between my thumb and forefinger, whilst Voigtman hastily tried to tie it. Thinking it was tied, I released it, and, alas, the flow started again. Once more I seized the vein. Once again Voigtman tried to tie it. Useless. We could not stop the blood. He would undoubtedly have bled to death before our eyes, had not Voigtman cauterized the place with an electric soldering iron which was handy. Much shaken, I completed the amputation and we dressed the stump as well as we could. At the moment of writing, he is still alive, but as white as snow, he must have lost liters of blood through that artery. New Entry 9 p.m. Wiener died two hours ago. I should say the immediate cause of death was shock and loss of blood. I did my best. New entry. We have been out on this extended patrol area seven days, but not a wisp of smoke greets our eyes. Nothing but sea, sea, sea. Oh, how monotonous it is! I cannot make out where the shipping has got to. Tomorrow I am going to close the North Cape again. I think everything must be going inside me. I am too far out here. New entry. The North Cape bears due east. Nothing afloat in sight. Where the devil can all the shipping be? In ten days' time I am due to meet my supply ship. Meanwhile I think I'll have to take another cast out of three hundred miles or so. New Entry Nothing in sight. Nothing, nothing. The barometer falling fast, and we are in for a gale. I have decided to make the coast again as I don't want to fail to turn up punctually at the rendezvous. New Entry In the Standerac Landholm Fjord, thank heavens. Heavens, we have had a time. We were still two hundred and fifty miles from the coast when we were caught by the gale. And a gale up here is a gale, and no second thoughts about it. To 
say it blew with the force of ten thousand devils is to understate the case. The sea came on to us in huge foaming rollers like waves of attacking infantry intent on overwhelming us. We struggled east at about three knots, but she stuck it magnificently. Low scudding clouds obscured the sky and came like a procession of ghosts from the northeast. Sun observations were impossible for two reasons. Firstly, no one could get on deck. Secondly, there was no visible sun. This lasted for three days, at the end of which time we had only the vaguest idea as to where we were. The gale then blew out, but, contrary to all expectations, was succeeded by a most abominable fog, thick and white like cotton wool. These were hardly ideal conditions under which to close a rocky and unknown coast, but it had to be done. The trouble was that it was entirely useless taking soundings, as the twenty-meter depth line on the chart went right up to the land. We crept slowly eastwards, till, when by dead reckoning we were ten miles inside the coast, the navigator accidentally leant on the whistle-lever. This action on his part probably saved the ship, as an immediate echo answered the blast. In an instant we were going full speed astern. We altered course sixteen points, and proceeded ten miles westerly, where we lay on and off the coast all night, cursing the fog. Next day it lifted, and we spent the whole time trying to find the entrance to the S. Landholm Fjord. The coast seemed to bear no resemblance to the chart whatsoever. The cliffs stand up to a height of several hundred meters, with occasional clefts where a stream runs down. There are no trees, houses, animals, or any signs of life except seabirds, of which there are myriads. The engineer declares he saw a reindeer, but five other people on deck failed to see any signs of the beast. After hours of nosing about, during which my heart was in my mouth, as I quite expected to fetch up on a pinnacle rock, items which are officially described in the handbook as being very numerous, we rounded a bluff and got into a place which seems to answer the description of S. Landholm. At any rate, it is a snug anchorage, and here I intend to remain for a few days, and hope for my store-ship to turn up. I posted a daylight lookout on top of the bluff. It would be very awkward to be caught unawares in this place, which is only about a hundred and fifty meters wide in places. I'm taking advantage of the rest to give the crews some exercises, and execute various minor repairs to the diesels. New Entry Yesterday we fought what must be one of the most remarkable single-ship actions of the war. At nine a.m. the lookout on the cliffs reported smoke to the northward. I got the anchor up and made ready to push off, but still kept the lookout ashore. At nine-thirty he reported a destroyer in sight, which seemed serious if she chose to look into my particular nook. At any rate, I thought, I wouldn't be caught like a rat so I got my lookout on board, a matter of ten minutes, and then proceeded out, trimmed down and ready for diving. When I drew clear of the entrance I saw the enemy distant about a thousand meters. I at once recognized her as being one of the oldest type of Russian torpedo boats afloat. When I established this fact, a devil entered into my mind, and did a most foolhardy act. I decided that I would not retreat beneath the sea, 
but that I would fight her as one service ship to another. When I make up my mind, I do so in no uncertain manner. Indecision is abhorrent to me, and I sharply ordered, Guns crew, action. I can still see the comical look of wonderment which passed over my first lieutenant's face, but he knows me, and did not hesitate an instant. We drilled like a battleship, and in sixty-five seconds, I timed it as a matter of interest, from my order we fired the first shot. It fell short. Extraordinary to relate, the torpedo-boat, without firing a gun, put her helm hard over, and started to steam away at her full speed, which I suppose was about seventeen knots. I actually began to chase her, a submarine chasing a torpedo-boat. It was ludicrous. With broad smiles on their faces my good gun's crew rapidly fired the gun, and we had the satisfaction of striking her once, near her after funnel, but it did no vital damage, as a few minutes afterwards she drew out of range. What a pack of incompetent cowards! They never fired a shot at us. I suppose half of them were drunk, or else in a state of semi-mutiny, for one hears strange tales of affairs in Russia these days. The whole incident was quite humorous, but I realized that I had hardly been wise, as without doubt the English will hear of this, and these trawlers of theirs will turn up, and I am certainly not going to try any heroics with John Bull, who is as tough a fighter as we are. Meanwhile, what of the supply ship, for I am supposed to meet her here, and it's already twenty-four hours since yesterday's epic-making battle, and I expect the English any moment. New entry. My doubts were removed for me, since I received special orders at noon by high-power wireless from Nordreich, and on decoding them found that, for some reason or other, we are ordered to proceed to Muckleflugger Cape, and thence down the coast of Shetlands to the Fair Island Channel, where we are directed to cruise till further orders. Special warning is included as to encountering friendly submarines. It appears to me that a special concentration of U-boats is being ordered round about the Orkneys, and that some big scheme is on hand. We are now steering southwesterly to make Muckleflugga, which I hope to do in four days' time, if the weather holds. These northern waters have proved very barren of shipping in the last few weeks, and this fact, coupled with the approaching winter weather, which must be fiendish in these latitudes, makes me quite ready to exchange the archangel billet for the work round the Orkneys and Shetlands, though this is damnable enough in the winter, in all conscience. There is only one fly in the ointment, and that is that this premature return to North Sea waters might conceivably mean a visit to Zeebrugge, though this class are not likely to be sent there. Though it is many weeks since I left Zoe, I have not been able to forget her. I continually wonder what she is doing, and often when I am not on my guard she wanders into my thoughts. Whilst I am up here, it does not matter much, except that it causes me unhappiness, but if I found myself at Bruges it would be very hard. However, I don't suppose I shall ever see her again. New Entry Sighted Muckleflugga this morning, and shaped course for Fair Island. New Entry Oh, what a hell I have passed through! I can hardly realize that I am alive, but I am, 
though whether I shall be tomorrow morning is doubtful. It all depends on the weather, and who would willingly stake their life on North Sea weather at this time of the year? Curses on the man who sent us to the Fair Island Channel! Where the devil is our intelligence service? If we make Flanders I have a story to tell that will open their eyes, blind bats that they are, luxuriating in the comfort of their fat staff-jobs ashore. The Fair Island Channel is an English death-trap. It stinks with death. By cursed luck we arrived there just as the English were trying one of their new devices, and it is the devil. Exactly what the system is I don't quite know, and I hope never again to have to investigate it. For forty-seven hours we have been hunted like a rat, and now, with the pressure hull leaking in three places, and the boat half full of chlorine, we are struggling back on the surface, practically incapable of diving, at least for more than ten minutes at a time. Even on the surface, with all the fans working, one must wear a gas mask to penetrate the fore compartment. Oh, these English, what devils they are! Here is what happened. Fair Island was away on our port beam when we sighted a large English trawler, which I suspected of being a patrol. To be on the safe side, I dived and proceeded at twenty meters for about an hour. At five p.m., approximately, I came up to periscope depth to have a look around, but quickly dived again as I discovered a trawler, steering on the same course as myself, about a thousand meters astern of me. This was the more disconcerting, as in the short time at my disposal it seemed to me that she was remarkably similar to the craft I had seen in the afternoon, and yet this hardly seemed likely, as I did not think she could have sighted me then. On diving, I altered course ninety degrees, and proceeded for half an hour at full speed, then altered another ninety degrees, in the same direction as the previous alteration and diving to thirty meters I proceeded at dead slow. By midnight I had been diving so much that I decided to get a charge on the batteries before dawn. I also wanted to be up at one a.m. to make my position report. I surfaced after a good look round through the right periscope, which, as usual, revealed nothing. I had hardly got on the bridge when a flash of flame stabbed the night on the starboard beam and a shell moaned just overhead. I crash-dived at once, but could not get under before the enemy fired a second shot at us, which fortunately missed us. As we dived I ordered the helm hard to starboard, to counteract the expected depth-charge attack. We must have been a hundred and fifty meters from the first charge, and a little below it five others followed in rapid succession, but were further away, and we suffered no damage beyond a couple of broken lights. The situation was now extremely unpleasant. I did not dare venture to the surface, and thus missed my 1 a.m. signal from headquarters. I wanted to charge badly, and so proceeded at the lowest possible speed. At regular intervals our enemy dropped one depth charge somewhere astern of us, but these reports always seemed the same distance away. At dawn I very cautiously came up to periscope depth, and had a look. To my consternation, I discovered our relentless pursuer about fifteen hundred meters away on the port quarter. In some extraordinary manner he had tracked us during the night. 
I dived and altered course through ninety degrees to south. At nine a.m. a tremendous explosion shook the boat from stem to stern, smashing several lights, and giving her a big inclination up by the bow. As I was only at twenty meters I feared the boat would break surface, and our enemy was evidently very nearly right over us. I at once ordered hard to dive, and went down to the great depth of ninety-five meters. A series of shattering explosions somewhere above us showed that we were marked down, and we were only saved from destruction by our great depth, the English charges being set apparently to about thirty meters. At noon the situation was critical in the extreme. My battery density was down to eleven hundred and fifty. The few lamps that I had burning were glowing with a faint dull red appearance, which eloquently told of the falling voltage and the dying struggles of the battery. The motors with all fields out were just going round. The faces of the crew, pallid with exhaustion, seemed of an ivory whiteness in the dusky gloom of the boat, which never resembled a gigantic and fantastically ornamental coffin so closely as she did at that time. The air was fetid. I struck a match. It went out in my fingers. The slightest effort was an agony. I bent down to take off my sea-boots, and cold sweat dropped off my forehead, and my pulse rose with a kind of jerk to a rapid beating, like a hammer. I left one sea-boot on. At one p.m. a deputation of the crew came aft, and in whispered voices implored me to surface the boat and make a last effort on the surface. A muffled report, as our implacable enemy dropped the depth charge somewhere astern of us, added point to the conversation, and showed me that our appearance on the surface could have but one end. At three p.m. the second coxswain, who was working the hydroplanes, fell off his stool in a dead faint. At 3.30 p.m. the supreme crisis was reached. Two more men fainted, and I realized that if I did not surface at once I might find the crew incapable of starting the diesels. At the order, Surface, a feeble cheer came from the men. We surfaced, and I dragged myself up to the conning tower. Luckily we started the diesels with ease, and in a few minutes gusts of beautiful air were circulating through the boat. Meanwhile, what of the enemy? I had half expected a shell as soon as we came up, and it was with great anxiety that I looked round. We had been slightly favoured by fortune, and that the only thing in sight was a trawler away on the port beam. It was our hunter. I trimmed right down, hoping to avoid being seen, as it was essential to stay on the surface and get some amperes into the battery. I also altered course away from him. It was about five p.m. that I saw two trawlers ahead, one on each bow. By this time the boat's crew had quite recovered, but I did not wish to dive, as the battery was still pitiably low. I gradually altered course to northeast but after half an hour's run I almost ran on top of a group of patrols in the dusk. I crash-dived, and they must have seen me go down, as a few minutes later the boat was violently shaken by a depth charge. We were at twenty meters, still diving at the time. I consulted the chart, but could find no bottoming ground within fifty miles, 
a distance which was quite beyond my powers. At 11 p.m. I simply had to come up again and get a charge on the batteries. From 7 p.m. to 10 p.m., at regular half-hourly intervals, a depth charge had gone off somewhere within a radius of two miles of me. Needless to say, I was only crawling along at about one knot, and altering course frequently. What was so terrible was the patent fact that the patrols in this area had evidently got some device which enabled them to keep in continual touch with me to a certain extent. These monotonous and regular depth charges seemed to say, We know, O oh, U-boat, that we are somewhere near you, and here is a depth charge just to tell you that we haven't lost you yet. Footnote. Carl was quite right. It is evident that he had the misfortune to encounter one of our new hydrophone hunting groups, just started in the Fair Island Channel. The incident of the depth charges every half hour was known as tickling up. Probably the patrol only heard faint noises from him. Etienne. End of footnote. As an hour had elapsed since the last depth charge, I felt fairly happy at coming up, and on making the surface I was delighted to find a pitch-black night and a considerable sea. From 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. I actually had three hours of peace, and in this period I managed to cram a considerable amount of stuff into the batteries. The densities were rising nicely and all seemed well, when I did what I now see was a very foolish thing. I made my 1 a.m. wireless report to Nordreich, in which I requested orders at 3 a.m., and reported my position, together with the fact that I had been badly hunted. In twenty-five minutes they were on me again. I had most idiotically assumed that the English had no directional wireless in these parts. They have. They've got everything that they have ever tried up there. It was concentrated in that infernal Fair Island Channel. I was only saved by seeing a destroyer coming straight at me, silhouetted against the low-lying crescent of a new moon. When I dived, she was about six hundred meters away. As I have confessed to doing a foolish thing, I give myself the pleasure of recording a cleverer move on my part. I anticipated depth charge attack as a matter of course, but instead of going down to twenty-five meters, I kept her at twelve. The depth charges came all right, seven smashing explosions, but, as I had calculated, they were all set to go off at about thirty meters, and so were well below me. The boat was thrown bodily up by one, and I think the top of the conning tower must have broken surface, but there was little danger of this being seen in the prevailing water conditions. End of section.